0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it.
1: The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in.
0: Yeah, because the key. King- Hello, everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the weekly program that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. I'm Kirk Hastings, and we have uh, also uh, Keith Kendricks with us today. Are you there, Keith? I sure am. Nice to hear you again. It's been a few weeks since we've both been together on here.
1: Yep, and I've missed it.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully some of our listeners have, too. But uh, we're back again, and we have a really interesting program for you today. The topic we're going to be discussing today is should Christians accept evolution? By that, we mean Darwinian evolution. And uh, we're going to go at that from a couple of different directions, and I think it'll make an interesting discussion. So uh, let's start out. Uh, Keith, I understand you have a news item for us. Yeah, this is very interesting from the Huffington Post religion
1: section. And it was posted, let's see here, July 18th. What daily practice may help American Christians become more concerned about issues of poverty, conservation, and civil liberties? Can you guess? Hmm. Reading the Bible. Really? Yes. So an article on the normally left-wing Huffington Post Talking about a study, this is a new study by Baylor University researcher Aaron Franzen that showed that Bible reading is tied to social justice and openness to science. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is one of a new field. You know, there have been a lot of studies on prayer and the effectiveness of prayer and how it does can actually be measured to work. There have been almost 2,000 studies on the field of prayer, now researchers are turning to the area of Bible study to see how that impacts people. Does that give you a better life if you study the Bible?
0: Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting, as they used to say on TV.
1: (laughs) Franzen says that in many cases, the frequency of Bible reading is one of the more powerful predictors of attitudes on moral and political issues so let's just go over a few of the findings the first is that the likelihood of Christians saying that it's important to actively seek social and economic justice to be a good person increased 39 percent with each jump on the ladder of frequency of reading scripture okay so here's the ladder of frequency from reading the Bible less than once a year to no more than once a month, to about weekly, to several times a week or more. Okay. So that's the progression. And between each step, the person increased by 39% their belief in the importance of seeking social and economic justice. Is that amazing?
0: Wow, that's really interesting.
1: So Bible reading changes you. The more you read the Bible, the better a person you become. Here's another finding. Christian respondents overall were 27% more likely to say it is important to consume or use fewer goods to be a good person as they became more frequent Bible readers. Okay, so more concern about the environment, about my own personal habits as a person, whether I'm wasting things and being profligate. So again, and at this time, between each step, a 22% increase. So it matters the difference between just reading once per year and reading once per month made a difference. And reading several times per week was the best. Wow. The third finding that they have is that reading the Bible more often was also linked to improved attitudes towards science. Respondents were 22% less likely to view religion and science as incompatible at each step towards more frequent Bible reading. Wow. How germane to the conversation today is that?
0: The uh, Very germane.
1: <laughs> yes, since we'll be talking about the question, should Christians embrace evolution?
0: Right, so, which is based on an article that uh, we saw on the Huffington Post.
1: Huffington Post. But to finish off this study, the results are consistent with past research. There was a study done in 1996 that showed that conservative Protestants were among the most generous Christians in giving to the poor. So those who were more regular in their Bible reading were much more generous to the poor. So if you'd like to be a better person, time to dust off that Bible, break it out, and begin reading.
0: And that's one of the ongoing themes of this program. Becoming a better person, absolutely. And knowing the Bible better and, and uh, becoming a better Christian as a result. Yep. Okay. Very interesting. That, that is fascinating that that appeared on the Huffington Post, which I've been reading a, a lot of really um, out there stuff on that uh, paper lately. It's an internet paper for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Uh, some of the search, uh, uh, not the search engines, but the uh, internet service providers uh, link you with the Huffington Post as a source of news and information. So, and AOL just bought it. So that means if you are a subscriber to AOL, you're going to get numerous links to the Huffington Post. Mm. So that's what that is. Okay, Uh, next uh, in line, I understand that we have a uh, letter that you wanted to bring up that you got. An email? Yes, that's
1: right. You should have it there.
0: Yes, I do have a copy of it right here. Okay, well, let me... uh, Fill in our listeners on this. This is uh, from a person who uh, wrote to you uh, on July 15th. I guess, was this in response to something, or just out of the blue you got this?
1: I think she was responding to a show that we did, and we mentioned the difference between microevolution and macroevolution during the show.
0: Right. Okay, it's a short little email. She says, uh, I believe it's a she, Uh, it's from Kalia. Uh, it says, evolution is adaptation. Microevolution over long periods of time is macroevolution. This isn't that hard to understand. If you weren't so indoctrinated, you'd use your brain and see this. You are reading an article about evolution while simultaneously claiming it isn't real. What do you think of that, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand you sent her an answer. A, yeah, go ahead and finish the. Uh... You want me to read the – okay, the last paragraph that she uh, adds on here, she says, also – I'm not sure what this is tied to, but she says, also, Jericho has been used as a settlement several times. The earliest known is 11,000 years ago, but I guess that doesn't mean much to people who don't believe that the earth is that old. All right. So that's kind of a different subject, but
1: (laughs) – Yeah, and I'm not sure that that – The topic of Jericho has come up in a long time, so perhaps she is referring to some podcasts that she's been listening to, which I don't remember if you mentioned the website for people.
0: Uh, I haven't yet, but I will now. Uh, We do have a website for... uh listeners who are interested in uh, checking out more information about us and also listening to podcasts of past programs if you've missed any of them and the site is found at www.evidence4faith.com if you want to yeah. check that out
1: yep yeah. so i responded to Callia. thanks for your email which station do you listen to us on or is it by podcast and specifically to answer her questions i say You gave us the atheistic definition of evolution, and you're right, it's not that hard to understand. That's why whenever we're explaining what the atheist view is, that's exactly what we say. We do understand what our opponents claim. We understand their viewpoint very clearly. We just think they're wrong. As we point out each time we approach the subject, it's the atheists who don't understand the arguments of the intelligent design movement. They can't explain how ID scientists define these terms, mostly because they simply don't understand the arguments. And she actually wasn't able to explain what we think about microevolution and macroevolution, even though she'd obviously heard us explain it because she mentions it in her email.
0: Right. Yeah, what she says here doesn't reflect what we say about it at all.
1: No, she just repeats the atheist viewpoint as if that's supposed to make us agree with it.
0: Well, that's the only, she says it as if that's the only position there is.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So I continue that what we would say is that microevolution is adaptation, and microevolution over long periods of time results in extinction. It doesn't become macroevolution. The evidence is insurmountable that microevolution does not and indeed cannot create any new genetic information. It almost always is the result of loss of genetic information. And at best, it's the designed rearrangement of existing information, the turning off of some genes and the turning on of other dormant genes. Mm-hmm. So which we've explained very detailed manner in other podcasts. Now I give her an analogy here. So let's describe this. I say saying that mutations and natural selection can turn a wolf-like animal into a whale. And the reason I use that example is because that's what evolutionists believe has happened in the past, that a mammal that was very like a wolf changed over time into a whale. Mm -hmm. So saying that you can turn a wolf-like animal into a whale is like saying that a man can walk to the moon. If I ask you what evidence is there that a man can walk to the moon, you can always say that you walked from Hemet, California to Idlewild, California, which is up in the mountains. And you are now around 4,000 feet closer to the moon. So since it's true (laughs) that someone can get closer to the moon by walking, then obviously just given enough time Even if it happens to be billions of years, if necessary, you can eventually walk to the moon. (laughs) So then I say, now, of course, you would say there's more to it than that. It's more complicated than what you're saying. Mountains don't reach to the moon and there is the problem of air and space and gravity and that is exactly the point that the ID scientists, the intelligent design scientists are making. Right. Things are much more complicated than what the atheists are saying. One of the many problems is that while mutations can make new amino acid chains, that that doesn't create a new functional protein. It creates a dysfunctional protein. Okay. We now know that the proteins... Are, that proteins are incredibly complex structures that have specific functions. They are not just little blobs of gel- gelatinous material. In fact, we know that the ratio of non-functional proteins to functional proteins is 1 times 10 to the 76th power. So that's a 1 with 76 zeros after it to 1. That's the odds. That number of non-functional proteins is so large... That it means that if you wanted to create a single new functional protein by random processes, you could have every single living cell on the earth create a new amino acid chain randomly every second for the entire 14 and a half billion year history of the universe, and you would not have enough time to create even a single functional protein. Wow. Let alone enough proteins to create even a single cell. So that is the part that the atheists are missing, that the evolutionists are missing, is you simply can't get there from here. Microevolution <laughs> occurs. We all agree it does. But microevolution over a, an extended period of time doesn't result in macroevolution. It results in extinction.
0: Right. And doesn't this also have to do with uh, uh, evolutionists say that the major cause of evolution is mutation? And isn't mutation almost always a loss of information, if not always a loss of information?
1: Yeah, the funny thing is that it was originally thought that mutations was the only way to change the genetic information, the DNA sequence. Right. Well, it turns out that actually there are pre-programmed changes that can occur also. So living cells actually re-engineer the DNA. They will actually intentionally change the structure of the nucleotides of the DNA on purpose in response to the environment in, an, in a manner so that they can adapt so that their offspring will have a better ability to adapt to the environment, right. to a changing environment. Right. So when you say a mutation of a, or a change, we now don't really know if it's a mutation or if it's a planned change, if it's designed. Right. So if you wanna, I guess, you know, add to the terminology again and make a mutation something that's accidental, not intended by the organism, then mutations, yes, are very frequently neutral because there are so many backup systems within living cells and living organisms that if you knock out certain genes because your mutation has damaged the gene, there will be backup genes and backup systems. And so to the organism that you're observing, nothing happens. So it's a mutation that you can definitely point to, but nothing happened to the organism. Other times, those accidental changes will happen to something that's crucial, that's not backed up, and those crucial changes will kill the organism or give it a disease or severely hamper it in some way.
0: Handicap it.
1: Right. Those are what happened to mutations. If it's a genetic change that was intentionally done by the organism in order to modify its offspring, so that what will happen is you're actually turning on dormant genes that are laying there, or you might be even modifying a gene. And in those cases, those will sometimes be beneficial, sometimes be harmful. And again, also, they'll sometimes be neutral. Sometimes those changes have to occur over a couple of generations before anything beneficial happens. But the organism doesn't really know what's going on in the environment. It just knows that, well, actually, there are even examples we know now that there are changes that an organism can make for its offspring that are directly in response to certain circumstances in the environment. But mostly it appears that it's just, hey, things are going bad. The organism is stressed. Let's make some changes in the next batch of babies. And so there are random changes that are done. And then the hope is that those random changes will be beneficial because you're turning on Dormant genes that are beneficial for the organism. Right. And that's why you have a lot of the changes that are similar among species. So you'll get, you know, the same kinds of eyes in different, completely different species, because those genes to make that particular kind of eye are present in all these varied kinds of animals. And evolutionists have to say, oh, look, this particular type of eye accidentally by chance, formed itself in completely unrelated animals 18 times. Wow. (laughs) Holy kazawi! It's magic.
0: (laughs) Shazam.
1: (laughs) Shazam. Yeah. And we don't even need a magician. (laughs) So, you know, and this is really superstition. I mean, superstition is the belief that of chance as a force.
0: Right. You know,
1: uh, you break a mirror and you're going to have bad luck for seven years. That, that chance occurrence is going to affect you. right? And that's superstition, <laughs> and evolution is a great example of superstition.
0: Yet it's interesting that a lot of evolutionists will say that religion and Christianity is a superstition.
1: Right, <laughs> but we believe in causes. We believe, yes, that's true, in supernatural causes, but since the cause is best explained logically and philosophically by uh, supernatural cause at least we have logic and a true cause and effect instead of illogic and no cause, just pure magic or chance.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Well Kirk, you presented a really good article that you found on the Huffington Post and I loved your email response to it and the research that you did to refute this. It was an article about should Christian should the Christian faith require accepting evolution. Right, And so this, apparently Christian, but I guess politically left, as you get to the end of the essay that he wrote on the Huffington Post, you see that it's really all about his liberal political views that he argues. But why don't you explain for people what this guy, and his name is Jonathan Dudley, was writing about the Huffington Post?
0: Yes, well, I encountered this article back in uh, June, actually, on the Huffington Post. And as you said, the writer's name is Jonathan Dudley, who is the author of a book called Broken Words, the Abuse of Science and Faith in American Politics. Um, He's a graduate of Yale Divinity School and currently a a medical student at John Hopkins School of Medicine. However, uh, he wrote this article that he posted on the Huffington Post, uh, the title of which is Christian Faith Requires Accepting Evolution. And he makes a little argument here. Basically, the whole gist of his article is, uh, in a sentence that he he has in the middle of the article, he says that creationism has failed to provide an alternative explanation for the vast majority of evidence explained by evolution. And right, then that's... he goes on in his article to make seven points that he believes uh, that creationism fails to explain which... Uh, by process of elimination, must mean that evolution is true. And I found these seven reasons that he listed here to be, uh, a little shallow. So I wrote him an answer back, and I kind of answered each one of his, uh, his seven points with some evidence that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Got a short answer back from him. Uh, I don't know uh, whether he really accepts what I said or not, but uh, we thought our listeners might be interested in the response that I did make to him. So that's what we're going to uh, focus on here.
1: Yep. Well, did you notice he he begins by saying that the anti-evolutionists have abandoned the Christian tradition. That's how he starts out. So... He's using an interesting term, anti-evolutionist. Now, we have to assume that he means Darwinian evolution because, you know, he doesn't really explain what he means.
0: No, he doesn't.
1: If you're going to create your own terms, you kind of have to explain what you mean. If you asked us, do we believe in evolution? Well, we would say yes and no because... There are certain types of evolution that we believe in and that's why we make a distinction of micro and macro evolution. Right. So, there's really
0: very there's a lot of different ways to uh, define the word evolution and it really helps if you're clear up front as to what part or what aspect of evolution you're talking about before you start making your argument which most evolutionists don't bother to do. No, which and which causes fact, a lot they- of confusion.
1: Yeah, and they use that confusion deliberately. You'll notice that what they'll do is they'll say, mac- they won't use the term macroevolution. They'll say evolution, but they mean, by it, they mean macroevolution or large changes over a long period of time. Right. Uh, macroevolution is true. Here's the evidence. Look at the microevolution. Of course, they won't say microevolution again. They'll, right. they'll give examples of adaptation. Or small amounts of change over a short period of time. And they'll say, see, that's proof that there have been these large period changes over large time. And it's simply ridiculous. The one doesn't follow from the other. Right. So he's, yeah, he's deliberately muddying the water by saying, just basically calling names. Yeah, and well, says,
0: that's evolutionists often do that, is like you said, they, they fail to distinguish between micro and macro evolution. And they'll often switch back and forth between the two without. Um, making it clear that that's what they're doing.
1: Right, right.
0: Now, maybe we should explain real quick for some of our listeners who might not be uh, familiar with what those terms mean. Real simply, microevolution means uh, change within a species or adaptation, and macroevolution means one species changing into another. And to
1: be uh, even more clear, it actually uh, can involve species change because... Species is also another nebulous term. Uh, For instance, it depends on how
0: you define species.
1: (laughs) Right? Yeah, you know there are there are you know multiple uh, finch species. Well, to you and I, they're all just finches. But to those, you know, specialists in the field, no, they say no. This slightly different beak that makes it a different species. So, okay, but that's still a small change over a short period of time. Not. Brand new systems, large changes over, you know, long periods of time.
0: It's nothing resembling a finch changing into a turtle. (laughs) Right. Or whatever.
1: (laughs) And did you notice in his third paragraph how he gave a nod of the head to our contention that Christianity laid the framework for the birth of science?
0: Yes, that was an interesting admission on his part.
1: Yeah, he says, past Christian theologians valued science out of the belief that God created the world that scientists study. And that's exactly right, and we still do. We still value the science that is discovered by examining the world. We just don't appreciate the science that is founded on atheism.
0: He also makes another interesting reference to uh, Philip Johnson, who wrote the book Darwin on Trial, uh-huh. and who was basically uh, considered the unofficial leader of the intelligent design movement, he admits that uh, Johnson's writings are are pretty much accurate when he says that uh, a lot of the um, the so-called evidence for evolution is not based upon any incontrovertible empirical evidence, but upon philosophical presuppositions.
1: Yes. Now, it's amazing to me that Jonathan Dudley mentions this because there's the answer to his confusion. Right. That's, that's the answer to his whole thing right there. Yes. He's saying, you know, oh, I don't understand why these Christians act this way. Well, here's the answer. You just wrote it down right in there. <laughs>
0: That, yeah, so. that it's it's an interesting contrast that in the first part of his article, it's like, oh, this sounds pretty good. But then, um, as I pointed out in my response to him, in the second part of his article, he turns completely around and and goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction with the rest of his argument.
1: Right. Yeah, it's very, you get it in that very next paragraph where he says, he admits, he, he's just mentioned about Philip Johnson and the idea of philosophical presuppositions and he says this line of argument makes sense right well yeah no duh (laughs) and then he says science is not a neutral enterprise prior beliefs undoubtedly influence interpretation
0: very true right (laughs) we would agree completely with that
1: but then he contradicts himself in the very next sentence he says if one believes that god created vertebrates with similar design plan one could in- acknowledge their structural sim- similarities without believing in common descent okay that might be true but he says no amount it, he like changes gears here all of a sudden and he throws this in this crazy statement no amount of radiocarbon dating evidence will convince someone that the earth is 4.5 billion years old if that person believes god created the world to look old with the appearance of age Well, in the first place, that's got nothing to do with his whole paragraph. And then he just contradicts what he was saying, because he was saying that it was about interpretation. And he's saying, no, it doesn't matter that it's about interpretation. They're not going to believe it anyways. Well, he's the one that's not believing it. Uh, Besides the fact that radiocarbon, he's totally wrong. He doesn't even know. He means radiometrics dating, not radiometric dating, not radiocarbon. You can't date anything past 60,000 years with radiocarbon. So, so, you know, if he's going to use an example, he ought to at least look it up. Right.
0: Well, you know, what I found interesting about this was, um, you know, like like you just said, he, he mentions... Uh, these different things that sounds like he supports a basically Christian point of view, but then he turns around and says that, well, creationism hasn't given us any decent explanation for the vast majority of evidence that we have. Yeah, Well, you know, a broad statement like that, that's not a philosophical presupposition.
1: (laughs) Right. And it's a bait and switch, because... First, he's talking about Philip Johnson, that he says the leader of intelligent design, but then he switches all of a sudden and says creationism. Now, by creationism, right. he probably means young earth creationism.
0: Which is, is somewhat crea- different from what Philip Johnson is, exactly. is arguing about. Exactly. Philip Johnson about. isn't a young earth
1: creationist.
0: He doesn't S- go that far.
1: Right. So, you know, he's using these terms very loosely. He baits and switches and, you know, then, so so in order to argue against the intelligent design movement, he's going to try to attack young Earth creationism. Right. Well, you know, I'm sorry, that that's just bad argumentation.
0: Well, it's very sloppy uh, logic and sloppy, in my opinion, sloppy writing also, yep. which is something that I mentioned to him in my response. Well, but really, his what, the seven... Uh, arguments that he has that he lists here uh, against creationism are all kind of uh, sloppy in the same way uh, as what we just mentioned
1: Yep. well do you want me to why don't i tell what the seven arguments are and then you can give the answers you researched okay okay so now remember he's saying that he's a christian and he accepts evolution and other christians ought to accept evolution Right. Why ought they to accept evolution? Remember, he's not saying here's the evidence for evolution that they ought to accept. He's saying here are the things that creationism can't explain. Okay. Okay. So right. it's kind of an argument from ignorance. He's saying these creationists are ignorant; they don't know the answer to this question. Right. So number number one is it has failed, meaning creationism. It has failed to explain why birds still carry genes to make teeth, whales to make legs, and humans to make tails. Okay. Now, before you answer, at least one comment I can make is that, guess what? Evolution can't explain that either.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's very interesting that this statement that he makes is actually based on an article that appeared... Uh, in a uh, British internet, on a British internet site, back in 2003, the the title of the article was "Birds with Teeth Turn the Clock Back 70 Million Years and They Could Help to Cure Baldness." Wow, oh. <laughs> a panacea here. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, I guess that's
1: so people will read it.
0: Right. Well, uh, I looked up some information on this article, and interestingly enough, um, the actual article under this headline was much less exciting than the headline itself. Really, what the article itself was tr- is trying to put across is, uh, if we were to boil it down, it's trying to say that the development of teeth in chick embryos after mouse neural crest transplantations. Now... You might be saying, "What has that got to do with birds with teeth and whales with legs and humans with tails?" Well, that was my question too. Mm-hmm. Um, the article goes on to talk about how uh, the um, scientists that the researchers that they're uh, talking about here managed to reawaken a gene that has lain dormant in birds for at least seventy million years. Right, but. In the end, the researchers actually did not make that claim in their original paper. Now, this article on the Times Online site made that claim, but the researchers did not. They said that even in in the evolutionary scenario, if genes had lain dormant over 70 million years, there would probably not be much chance of them still being functional because mutations would have destroyed them. And went on to... It's a very long article. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But um, basically, uh, the headline is a sensationalistic headline, which really isn't very accurate. And yet, uh, Jonathan Dudley uses this as a proof as to why creationism is not true.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Well, because he's saying that creationists can't explain it. And, you know... Evolutionists can't explain how these systems can lay dormant for so long because what they're saying is going on is that there's these mutations happening all the time and then natural selection weeds out the non-useful genes. Well, if a gene is dormant and it's turned off, right, the mutations will happen to it, but the organism that has those mutations can't be selected for by natural selection. They won't be killed off. They'll continue to mate and produce offspring, and so those mutations will be passed on and on and on, and they keep building up and building up until that dormant gene is riddled with mutations and can no longer function either to make teeth or, in the case of whales, to make legs. Or, and this crazy idea of humans to make tails, which that's really silly because what he's talking about is the coccyx bone. The bones at the bottom of the pelvis are there to provide ligament support for the muscles so that you can stand upright. It has nothing to do with the tail.
0: Oh, I thought that's where our tail used to be, and it kind oh. of evolved <laughs> away.
1: <laughs> yes, in that uh, magical superstition called macroevolution.
0: Well, how come when we see the uh, drawings in the evolutionary books of the caveman and stuff, how come we never see them with tails?
1: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, I've because never seen a caveman with a tail. Further, further back. Back at the <laughs> monkey stage.
0: Oh, boy. Well, anyway, um, the... Uh The uh, information that I looked up here says that uh, the the article in the Times Online says that at the most, the researchers showed that some genes that normally have other functions may assist in the expression of the tooth-forming genes in mouse tissue. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, how does that prove evolution is true and creationism isn't? Right. It's really... Well, they're, um, they're supposedly,
1: yeah, they're supposedly saying that, look, birds have teeth or had teeth in the past, and now they don't have teeth, but we can reactivate these genes by inserting this mouse gene. So a couple okay. interesting things. One is the really interesting thing that you can use this mouse gene to work inside of a bird. So that's got, really
0: interesting. Yeah, I would have genes, never know, thought of that.:
1: <laughs> Genes that are multi-purpose. So, this just adds to their complexity and their design abilities. Uh, you know, this has, is no argument for evolution, that this is just an accidental thing. If it were accidentally designed or accidentally occurring, then what you'd find is that a mouse gene wouldn't have any effect on chick genes at all. But, regardless, is it possible that birds had teeth in the past and now they don't? Yes. It is possible because that's still not turning a bird into a mouse. Right. Birds with teeth, birds without teeth.
0: It's still a bird.
1: It's still a bird. And if these birds were originally created with the option of living with teeth and without, they would be turned on or off based on the environment. And then you'd have natural selection affecting them. And so apparently it's possible that... Birds in the past, in the past, had teeth. The natural selection killed them off, and now birds don't have teeth. But there's still that gene that's been turned off inside the bird. And that I, I find is it is very interesting. Design.
0: I find it very interesting that they're also referring to a a, a dormant gene that has been here for 70 million years. We're not talking about a gene that was created recently. It's right. been there all along. Right. It's just not being used.
1: <laughs> All right, let's go on to the second objection. He says, creationism, uh, and you know this is a really a, a bad term, but we'll use it because he did. It's a very unclear term. Uh, because really, creationism is anybody who believes that God created. Right. So, you could be a, th- a theistic evolutionist and believe in macroevolution and common descent and still be a creationist. Right. You could be a deist and still be a creationist.
0: It's another term that you really need to define before you start making arguments for or against it.
1: Right. So he says, creationism has failed to explain why the fossil record proposed by modern scientists can be used to make precise and accurate predictions about the location of transition fossils. So what do you you
0: have to say about that? Well, this is really a stretch. Um, First of all, I wasn't even aware that they were able to do this to to predict the location of transition fossils and uh, according to what you told me you're aware of an article uh that they kind of did this once Once, with one fossil (laughs) right Um, so they got
1: it right one time out of the millions of fossils that are out there they were able to predict oh i think that it kind of amphibian creature ought to be right around here let's dig and see if we can find it
0: and, and wow. they found it and it's now. like oh we predicted this
1: that's right once and, exactly and so what does this guy do he says that oh well creationists can't explain that yeah but here's, I can explain it
0: <laughs> here's a couple of interesting quotes here that I sent him in response to this uh, argument This first one is by Charles Darwin, which is in his Origin of Species book, Mm -hmm. where he said the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the Earth must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Yep. Now, here's another quote that I sent him. This one is by uh, David Ralp, who was a paleontologist at the University of Chicago and the Field Museum. Mm -hmm. He said... The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically—now, this guy is an evolutionist, I should Mm -hmm. say—is surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. By this, I mean that the classic cases of Darwinian change in the fossil record, such as the evolution of the horse in North America, have had to be modified or discarded as a result of more detailed information— What appeared to be a nice, simple progression when relatively few data were available now appears to be much more complex and less gradualistic.
1: Right. So when you actually look at the fossil record, he says creationism can't explain it. But when you actually look at it, it's evolution that has the problem of not being able to explain it because there aren't the gradual, slow transitions that you ought to be seeing if evolution were true.
0: Right. Almost every fossil should be some kind of a transitional fossil between what came before and what came after.
1: Right. In fact, we find just the opposite. Yep. Well, the third argument then is that creationism has failed to explain why the fossil record demonstrates a precise order with simple organisms in the deepest rocks and more complex ones towards the surface. What do you say about
0: that? Now, this one really related to me because I actually have a section in my the book that I wrote uh, about this, where I specifically dealt with this idea. We're, we're basically talking here about the geological column that evolutionists right. uh, propose, which is an idea that geological processes in the distant past operated exactly the same way as they do today, um, and that... Um, There's a sequence that we can see in rocks where the oldest rocks and the oldest, thus the oldest fossils are on the bottom and the newer rocks and the newer fossils are on the top. Now, the problem with this is with uh, what they call the geologic column. Uh, and you see these neat little diagrams in evolution books where they show you like, like they take a mountain and they cut it down the middle and they show all the different strata from the bottom up to the top. Mm-hmm. The problem is that this neat little column does not exist in that form anywhere in the world with all of those pieces all in that exact order. Right. These um, the, the different strata that they include in these diagrams are found in different places all over the world, but there's nowhere that they appear in that neat little progression in one place. So basically right. what we're talking about here when we talk about the geologic column is a presupposition.
1: Right. It's one of, of those things he said that he even said this can affect how you interpret the data. Right. So, and you know what I, I say also, what's it got to do with evolution or intelligent design?
0: That's a good question,
1: too. You can believe in the geologic record and still believe in intelligent design. Sure. So, so this, this third one, point, is just uh, useless. Well, the fourth one is creationism is, has failed to explain why today's animals live in the same geographical area as fossils of similar species.
0: Now, that's another interesting statement that I had never heard before. I read it in this guy's article.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I just wonder if he's just making this stuff up.
0: Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I've read a lot of material uh, pro and against evolution, and frankly, I've never come across this idea before mm-hmm. that this happens. <laughs>
1: and, and even if it did happen, I still have no—there's no—, there's no conclusion that you could draw from this that, oh, therefore, macroevo- evolution must be true. Therefore, creatures have not been intelligently designed. Right. In fact, we know this is completely false. I mean, anybody who thinks about it knows that up in Alaska, there are all kinds of tropical animals, fossilized mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and things that do not live there. Now, uh, it's just ridiculous to think that this is true. It, it could be that it is true in some places.
0: Sure. you know but and, and the odds are in some limited places, it probably is true, but in many places it's not.
1: <laughs> right. So again, nothing that you would base your belief in evolution on. Number five, he says, is creationism has failed to explain why if carnivorous dinosaurs lived at the same time as modern animals, we don't find the fossils of modern animals in the stomachs of fossilized dinosaurs.
0: (laughs) That's another really interesting idea that I never thought of before. Um, First of all, it's like, okay, even if we accept what he says here, what does that prove? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, how did does it, it just... disprove creationism, improve evolution, if we don't have any modern animals in the stomach of dinosaur fossils?
1: And even if dinosaurs did not eat modern animals, couldn't they both have been intelligently designed anyway? Sure. Sure. Please. I mean, you know, what is a
0: ridiculous argument? What does that got to do with anything?
1: <laughs> right. Plus, uh, you know, we I, as we said before, we accept microevolution. We do believe that modern animals, those animals that you see around you today are different from animals of the past. So, you know, we know we've talked on the show about how all of the dog kinds, you look at your pet animal dog, we know genetically that dog came from A Middle Eastern wolf. It's been traced back. All right. Number six is that creationism has failed to explain the broken genes that litter the DNA of humans and apes, but are functional in lower vertebrates. What do you say about that?
0: I mean, that's really a clo- uh, cut and dried. Clo- that closes the case, doesn't it? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, once again, we're up to, we're up to uh, reason number six here, and it's like we're trying to struggle with each one of these as as to what these objections directly have to do with whether God created things or whether random chance did. I right. mean, it, it, apparently, it, it, these are just things really
1: that he doesn't know about. So because he doesn't know the answers, he thinks that that constitutes proof. It's like saying that, you know, you're on a a trial and you're trying to decide if a guy is a murderer or not, and you don't know where he was the night of the murder. So you say, okay, well, he must be guilty. Reason number one, we don't know where he was the night of the murder. He could have been there at the murder scene. (laughs) Right. Okay. yeah, that's proof. (laughs) But, you know... Kirk, you, Mike and I did a whole show on this broken genes, the pseudogenes, that are similar between humans and apes. And the truth is that we have discovered that they actually do have function.
0: Uh, so I know you did function, a whole program on this, and you actually understand this a bit better than I do. So I'll well, give you the mic for this.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I really thats that's all we need to say is that the 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 argument was that because they were broken genes so they're not genes that are actually designed for a function and that they were shared it must be that human beings got these as copying copies from the apes but the, if they're for a purpose then it can be that god created apes with this specific gene for the same purpose as this specific gene in the human being and that doesn't prove common descent and that turns out to be the case that these pseudogenes are not really non-functional they actually serve a purpose a regulatory purpose for other genes right so now number seven his final argument here here's the big one save the big the best for last Creationism has failed to explain how the genetic diversity we observe among humans could have arisen in a few thousand years from two biological ancestors. So, Adam and Eve could not have given birth to so many different kinds of people.
0: Really. Okay. Well, that closes the case, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Again, what does this have to do with creation and evolution? It's, it's really a stretch, Right. Um, and it, it, it's really a very minor argument. But even if we take this at face value, it's, it's really a, uh, a way of how you look at the evidence as to whether you can even make this statement or not. For instance, um, many scientists will say that the genetic diversity among dogs is vastly larger than the different races of human beings. So what can we say? Oh, you know... It, it's impossible for us to have all the different kind of dogs we have today because there wasn't enough time for them all to evolve, but they're all here. Right. And, you know, to apply this idea to human beings and say that, okay, they couldn't have, uh, you know, couldn't come from two original human beings. First of all, he, he makes the um, non sequitur, here, that he's talking about a few thousand years. Well, who said that it's a few thousand years?
1: Right, right. He, again, he's arguing specifically only against young earth creationism. That doesn't mean that intelligent design isn't true. But I would even disagree. You know, I think that you actually can get all of these changes over just a few thousand years there is uh, quite a
0: bit of scientific evidence that strongly suggests that that you can get all the changes that we have in a few thousand years right he's even, not even right about that right black
1: white blonde hair dark hair blue eyes all of these things can come along in just a short period of time so he's just factually wrong you know even if you wanted to accept that the the earth were only a few thousand years old
0: well, well, really, what what I think the main objection that we're trying to put across here that we have with these arguments that he's presenting is that they're they're all minor arguments. He's kind of um, dancing around the main issues, and he's focusing at all the little uh, pickyune details and saying, "Oh, well, this doesn't work, and that doesn't work, and this doesn't work." Therefore, you know, the whole idea of creationism is wrong, and right. his method of arguing is really poor here. Right. And
1: and at the beginning he said that there were concepts that can uh, affect the way you look at the data and then look what he does at the end of the his article he actually tells some of the concepts that he believes uh, in and you can now you know why he accepts evolution. He says that Americans have been led astray on questions ranging from the value of stem cell research to the ideology of homosexuality, to the causes of global warming. Right. So, he lets the cat out of the bag that it's really these things that are so important to him, and that's why Christians ought to embrace evolution.
0: Right. It's because we have all the wrong political beliefs here. Right. Right. <laughs> Very good. Very interesting. Well, I made a couple other points in my uh, answer to him, but we're kind of running out of time here. So, uh, but yeah, basically, I thought you did
1: a great job giving him the opposite arguments of what evolution can't explain—macroevolution, how what it can't explain—and you had some very good ones. So maybe we'll bring them up on a on another show. Right. We should mention that book, though. Do you have that? I I don't. See the information on that book.
0: I did not print the information out on that book.
1: All right. Um, Let's see. Oh, here it is. It is called, if you'd like more information on this topic, we found a book, Should Christians Embrace Evolution? By Norman Nevin. I haven't read this. I've read only a review, which liked the book very much. And so... A good source of further information.
0: I'm definitely interested in getting that, too. I understand it's available on Amazon.com, and if we uh, get a hold of a copy of it, maybe we'll discuss it on a future program as well. Great. Okay, so uh, that'll just about wind it up for us today, and uh, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Uh, once again, we remind you of our website at www.evidence4faith.com if you'd like to go there and listen to past programs. And we thank you for listening to us today. Join us next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>